Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 24, Why Drug Prices Are So Expensive in the United States. My guest, Donald Light, explains why drug prices are so high in the United States and the deficiencies in our current drug regulation system. Donald Light is a professor of psychiatry and medical sociology at Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine. He is a guest researcher at Princeton and New York University. Professor Light received the Edmund Pellegrino Medal in Bioethics for 2016 and the Distinguished Career Award for 2013 from the American Sociological Association. On the Google Citation H Index, Professor Light ranks in the 96th percentile. Professor Light's statements are based on a quarter century of research and observation, but they do not represent any institution to which he is affiliated. Professor Donald Light, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Well, thank you, Joe, for having me on the air. You're welcome. I'd like to start by asking, why are drug prices so expensive in the United States? Prices in the United States are so high because Congress, all the elected representatives in the House of Representatives and the Senate, with some exceptions, believe very deeply in capitalism and applying capitalism to health care. And pharmaceuticals are one of the most uh, vibrant, rapidly growing, and profitable industries that your congressmen and my congressmen support. And uh, we Americans spend about $35 billion supporting the National Institutes of Health for doing fundamental research. And then drug companies license patents and license those discoveries and carry them on further. But that's just the way Congress wants it. They even have gone out of their way in more recent years to almost insist that researchers patent their discoveries and see how much they can get for them by selling them to drug companies. So we have high prices because that's the system that is strongly supported in the United States. Has this system been supported recently, or is it just something that's happened in the past? The United States is unique in in not finding ways of controlling drug prices one way or another. So one of the most important ways other affluent countries have controlled drug prices is to set up the third hurdle, that is, after drugs are approved by the FDA, which, by the way, is very much in the pocket of the industry, and where the changes in the FDA, FDA rules mean that companies pay the actual reviewers 
for their drugs. So this is a massive conflict of interest. Uh, it would be as if Boeing paid the aviation board technicians for reviewing the safety of their jet airplanes. On a pretty straightforward quid pro quo uh, fee-based way, and um, so other countries have set up a third hurdle, which essentially says, is this drug much better than the drugs we already have? Because we have about 12,000 drugs that have been discovered and developed and put on the market. So is this new one sufficiently better than the other 12,000 to warrant a higher price? And most of the time, the answer is no. 90% of new drugs that are developed are basically developed to get new patents in order to charge monopoly prices in the U.S. market, which is 60% of the world market because um, there are no price controls and there is no third panel that decides whether drugs are sufficiently better to be worth paying more for them. There are other ways in which other countries control prices. Another way that they do it is by using a price basket of prices in half a dozen other countries. And so they're more or less saying this is Canada's approach, for example, that Canadian prices cannot be much higher than a weighted average of a basket of prices in other countries. And that helps keep prices down somewhat. But I think the most valuable one, which is used in a number of countries, Scotland, uh, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, says that the relative value will determine the price. And usually there's not much in the way of added value. So when you say relative value, are you talking about efficacy of the drug? Yes. It is a drug sufficiently more effective for patients than drugs that we're already administering and are on the market. And so we have no checks for efficacy in this country. And because of that... Well, so not, yeah, not really. And the FDA has bit by bit reduced the amount of clinical evidence that companies need to produce to get a drug approved. So the companies can also determine what are called the endpoints or the criteria by which their drug will be approved. So they choose the endpoints, most of which are not clinical, they're technical endpoints. Then they run the trials themselves. They pay for the trials themselves. And then they pay the regulator to review this evidence on their drugs. So it's a sweetheart closely looped system for rewarding any minor variation to be patented and priced as high as companies get away with. So what you're saying, it's like if I wrote a book, then I can pay the book reviewer to review the book and there's no comment about how good the book is. It can just go on the market. That's right. Although it's much worse than writing a book. Yes, it's, it's like that. Roughly. So what is the thing that we're checking? Do we check the safety of the drugs? Ah, so on safety, um, there is a very talented um, PhD in pharmaceutical law at Harvard who did his dissertation at Harvard Law School on the safety criteria used by the FDA. 
And what he found was there are no safety criteria. So there are no stated criteria for safety either. And it's decided on a sort of relative basis. And the argument for doing it that way is to say, well, safety is relative. If a drug, for example, like Levic, is terrifically better than other cancer drugs, then you might be a bit more tolerant and relaxed about adverse side effects because it's doing so much good. Well, if it's the um, the seventh statin drug and you already have six on the market and they all do more or less the same thing, you might be much stricter about safety. So that's the other the other kind of argument that's used around safety. But I think it's remarkable as this young man at Harvard, Jonathan Darrow, that there really are no safety criteria used by the FDA. And yet they 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 don't tell the public. So they you know, when a drug is approved it's approved as quote safe and effective. And there's actually very little evidence that they're clinically effective and also very little evidence that they're clinically safe. And then and then the trials are allowed to be run short terms and usually adverse side effects take a little longer or maybe several weeks or a few months longer. So if you have short trials, you don't pick up the adverse side effects in in the trial data. So then the FDA can say, well, it's safe because there's no evidence here of adverse side effects. But they didn't run the trials long enough to to show the adverse side effects. So as a result of that, um, the bottom line is one in every four newly approved drugs is safe and effective ends up having adverse side effects sufficiently serious that a black label a black box is put on the label or the drug is withdrawn. One in four. I think that's really high. So in terms of who determines the relative safety, so that's determined by the drug companies or the reviewer? In effect, it is because they design the trial with the endpoints, and the endpoints generally are not safety endpoints. They're endpoints of technical effectiveness. They analyze the data. Then they present the data to the FDA. Then they pay on a direct fee basis about $2 million for drug review to the FDA's review staff. So the FDA review staff are essentially paid reviewers by the company to the tune of $2 million per drug reviewed. Now, you keep mentioning that there are technical endpoints. Can you explain? What you mean by that? Maybe I explain a little bit. I but I should say I should say I'm a sociologist and historian who studies comparative health systems, and I'm not a physician and I'm not a pharmacologist. And in some ways, you might say, as some of my family members say, that I have nothing very useful in my training in what I do. I just think it's right, and my work is highly cited, but I don't have technical training. But examples might be, um, let's see, for example, depression is measured by scales. A lot of things are measured by scales, and the scales themselves may or may not relate to 
actual clinical depression or other actual clinical symptoms that people experience. So you're already one step removed from measuring real effectiveness in real patients by using scales. And so one scale is called the Hamilton scale for depression. So if your endpoint is that this drug will score a little bit better on the Hamilton scale, and then I don't think I mentioned this, but the samples, even the randomized clinical trial samples, are also biased. So you can select people you do the testing on, which then makes it much more likely that you can get outcomes that are a couple of points better on the scale. And then the FDA says, oh, well, you did what you said you would do. You proved that the drug was more effective. But how this actually helps patients is unclear. I should mention to to your listeners, they should go to pharmamyths.net. That's pharmamyths, P-H-A-R-M-A-M-Y-T-H-S dot net. And on pharmamyths.net, you'll see almost all of my articles, and they're free for download. And down the middle of pharmamyths.net are what I call the five pillars of current pharmaceutical policy. So the first one is that most new drugs are life-saving, and they must be rushed to patients who need them, which is why there's always this emphasis on speed of review of these biased trials and biased results. Now, in fact, only about 10% of all drugs are for conditions that could be called life-threatening, and then only 10% of those are life-saving. So we're really, it's only about 1%, 10% times 10% or 1% of new drugs could be called life-saving. And the second one is that the FDA screens out unsafe and ineffective drugs so that approved drugs are safe and effective. And I've already explained the ways in which uh, that's not true. Another important point is that when they compare new drugs to placebo, a drug can be better than placebo, but no better than drugs already on the market. It could even be worse than drugs on the market, and it be better than placebo. So there, there's a kind of falseness to comparing drugs when you already have 12,000 drugs on the market, as if you had no drugs on the market. And saying, well, how, how does it compare to if the patient took nothing? That's not the real world we're in. The real world we're in has 12,000 drugs already out there. There's an an epidemic of harmful side effects. I have a little inexpensive book called The Risks of Prescription Drugs, published by Columbia University Press. And uh, by the way, the first chapter is free on pharmamist.net. And it shows that we do have an epidemic of harmful side effects. As far as we can tell, prescription drugs are about the fourth to sixth leading cause of death in the United States. And then there are about uh, 20 patients hospitalized for adverse side effects for everyone that dies. So about 2.5 million serious adverse reactions lead to hospitalizations a year. A fourth pillar of pharmaceuticals is that the market is flooded with new products 
cause little or no advantage. They consume 80% of pharmaceutical costs. And that's true. And the, and the pharmaceutical side effects actually lead to more sales because the way that doctors respond to adverse side effects is to prescribe uh, another drug to counter the adverse side effects. So now you're taking two drugs. The first one that you were given to get better and the second one to counter the adverse side effect of the drug that you were given. And then uh, another pillar or myth has to do with the cost. And we get now back to the high prices. So the industry claims that it costs about $2.6 billion to develop a new drug. And you'll see on pharmamyth.net an article on the um, deconstructing the myths of the cost of drugs. Because um, even using the industry's own data, which is uh, closely held and confidential and nobody can verify the veracity of those data, um, the costs are, are more like one-eighth of the cost they claim that they are. They use a number of inflators that I think would take too long to describe. But essentially, their estimate of the cost of R&D have been ramped up by a number of inflators. What percentage of new drugs are found by pharmaceutical companies? And what percentage of new drugs are based on research by the NIH? Do you know? Well, it's the wrong way to put it because the pharmaceutical companies, especially the large ones, control the end of the pipeline and control the market. So it's not as if the NIH is a separate agency that is uh, inventing new drugs. Rather, it's that they come up with various kinds of discoveries and advances, and then companies patent those and sometimes combine them. And most of their money goes into the clinical trials, which they, of course, want to control because they can shape the the trial and the evidence by paying for it. But that's a massive conflict of interest against patients. So in terms of Medicare for All, I want to link this all back to Medicare for All. The idea of Medicare for All is based on the idea that healthcare is a human right and that everybody who needs medical care should get it, and it should be a public good, all right? And if if you believe in that, then you don't believe in having drugs developed by uh, multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical companies that are pricing their drugs at about 50 to 100 times their manufacturing cost. Uh, that's another thing on pharmamyths.net is a, a chapter I did estimating how much more they charge than cost them to manufacture. And I just finished a detailed study for Doctors Without Borders about um, HCV vaccines, and they're being priced at about 50 times cost in affluent countries. And they're unaffordable in in most of the countries where most of the illness is. So there's this terrible global health inequality and injustice that the current system keeps exacerbating. Anyway, uh, Medicare for All 
is a public good human rights kind of impulse. And it's not very American. What's American is supporting industry, spending public money in order to foster private enterprise. And and that's uh, not the way other countries do it, but it's the way the U.S. does it. Well, I would argue that that needs to change because of the problems oh, yes. with our current health care oh, system. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole situation is unaffordable. So as you can tell from what I, the picture I painted, we're getting hundreds of new drugs that do little or no additional good for our patients, have adverse side effects, and are officially approved and legally required to be covered by Medicare. So one of the real problems with the current Medicare, which is uh, a pretty deeply flawed plan, it's a lot better than before we had Medicare at all, but Medicare, as we now have it, amongst other things, requires that Medicare as a federal program pay for every new drug approved. And I've already made pretty clear why that's a huge waste of money and actually puts a lot of patients at risk for adverse side effects. Well, Medicare for All needs to seriously address the part of Medicare now that requires Medicare to cover every new drug approved by the FDA. And if it did, it would save billions and billions of dollars and also avoid several uh, million adverse side effects of all the new drugs approved that are little or no better for patients and that have adverse side effects. An effective Medicare for all would be very careful about only prescribing and it would have a formulary. It would be a national formulary. The question for a national formulary is, do we want to spend more public money on this drug that we have in front of us? And if the answer is no, because we have effective cheap drugs already, then you don't cover that drug. I'd like a point of clarification. Is it NIH research that leads to most new drugs? Well, one way or another, uh, NIH research does contribute to most new drugs, either at a more fundamental cellular level or biochemical level or a genetic level. So I agree that we need to do something about this. So you were saying that we need a formulary, and that formulary would um, need to test for efficacy and actually test for side effects and redesign how we do the testing so that we can actually come up with both safe and effective drugs to determine if they're actually more effective than what's already on the market. Is that a fair yes, summary? And, and, yeah, and several countries do this already. So it requires no new methodology. There's nothing new about it. It's a well-established way of deciding which drugs to cover. Why should taxpayers' money be wasted on on more expensive drugs that aren't better than generics? And even amongst the generics, the United States is unique in having no formulary. The Veterans Health Administration has a formulary, and the VHA or the VA um, also does comparative efficacy testing. 
And what they do and what these other countries do is just say to the company, send us all your evidence about how how good this drug is. We, we want to see all your evidence. Um, but know that when you send the evidence, we're going to put it all up on the web. So all your evidence you send will be in the public domain. And then we'll also review all the scientific evidence, all the trial evidence. We'll weigh all the evidence that's in. And our goal is to look for evidence that a new drug or even an existing drug is clinically effective. I say clinically is a key thing, not technically, but clinically better for patients. And if you do that, about uh, 90% of drugs don't get on the formulary because they're not clinically better than other drugs. Professor Light, it always worries me when I listen to something and it's a lot worse than I thought. And after listening to you, our drug policy is even worse than I thought. And that's scary to me. I'd like to know if there's anything you would like to add before we end. Well, eat well and exercise and stay healthy. So you don't need the drugs, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Professor Light, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. You're welcome. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.